Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Miles. The Building Excellence Podcast is all about sharing inspiring stories from some of the most successful athletes, coaches, business minds, and thought leaders to help you build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. We hope this show provides you with tremendous value. If you find the show impactful, please share with a friend and on social media, as well as subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Now let's get to the show and start building excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. Everybody, welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I've got Blake Zimmerman with me on today. Uh, thanks for being here, Blake. You bet, man. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind, just kind of give us an overview of your background growing up and what that looked like. Sure. And it's funny with you and me talking, like it's it's intertwined pretty closely. I yeah. Mean, I may not be here if not for, for people that you're related to, and yeah. I can explain <laughs> more about that. So I'm an Oklahoman, born and raised, and um, however, I do like to think that I'm a little bit more Oklahoman than other Oklahomans. By that, here's what I mean. So my parents, uh, you know both my parents, my mom grew up in Sealing, Oklahoma, which is kind of near Woodward, Oklahoma, by the Panhandle, and on her side of the family, they actually still have land that they got in the land run. Really? So going back, like early 1900s, they still have a big ranch over by the Panhandle, my grandfather on that side of the family was a rancher. Mm-hmm. He started a sale barn. And so it was kind of like this ranch patriarch guy out in western Oklahoma. Um, so that's my mom's side of the family. And then my dad's side of the family, he grew up in Sperry. And he was a state FFA officer. Went to farmhouse fraternity at Oklahoma State. Both my parents went to Oklahoma State. And so it's like Oklahoma is in my blood. Um, so we were raised in Stillwater. Um, both my parents, even though they went the ranch and the farm route when they were younger, we didn't really do that, um, with our family. Not that they hated it. We just didn't do it. We Mm -hmm. were a baseball family. So in the summers, three boys, I've got two brothers. We travel around playing baseball and we went to a nice little Baptist church in Stillwater, kind of first Baptist church. And so it felt like I had about as Oklahoma of a childhood as you can get. And I'm thankful for it. It was a great, it was a great upbringing. Um, yeah. So that's kind of early on yeah. in childhood. Yeah. So what was it like growing up in Stillwater at Oklahoma state? Cause you wound up going to Oklahoma yeah. state. Yeah. I love Stillwater. Mm-hmm. So it's six, a high school, Yeah, which meant that we had to play your Wassos, your Tulsa unions, your broken arrows, your jinx and everything. And we'd get crushed. Yeah. Um, because it really only is six, a because of the university there. Um, but my graduating class was about 365. I felt like there was a good portion of people that wanted to get the heck out of Stillwater. Mm-hmm. They'd spent enough time there. There was nothing to do. The bowling alley was lame. Like all of this stuff in Stillwater wasn't that cool. Um, and I, I don't know, man, when I look back at 18 year old Blake, I wasn't very experimental. I kind of played it safe. I think I maybe got that from my parents. Not that it's a bad thing. But I just didn't really dream of like going off somewhere crazy, going to an Ivy League school or going mm-hmm. to the West Coast. I just didn't really think much about that. I thought, I thought about the day ahead of me, the week ahead of me. That's not bad. It's just how I was. So I still remember my senior year of high school. Um, I just came to the conclusion, I was like, I'll probably go to OSU. And so at Stillwater <laughs> High School, they had... Uh, during lunch, they had on-the-spot college admissions for OSU. Really? <laughs> so they had some counselors there that all you had to do is bring your ACT score, your transcript, and you could get admitted to OSU on the spot really? without writing the essays, all of that stuff. 
So I didn't apply to any other schools. Really? <laughs> All I did was on the spot admission for OSU. Um, so now that I'm 30, looking back on it, how much I love to read and learn now, it's like, why didn't you just go for it? Yeah. Go to some other school. You really went to OSU, and I thought, oh, I'll major in sports management because I like sports. Uh-huh. Like, just, it's amazing <laughs> how much you change over the course of 10 years. Um, so that's how I decided OSU. But looking back on it now, even though from from this perspective, I would say, oh, why didn't you go look at something else? I'm... It was the step that I needed to take. Met my wife there, met so many great friends there, did the whole farmhouse fraternity thing like my dad. Those four years were a gift Mm -hmm. um, that changed me at a deep level in so many different ways. Um, But going to OSU inside Stillwater felt like a different experience because it's its own little town. Yeah. Um, I experienced so much of Stillwater that I didn't, living there for 18 years. It took me getting to college at OSU to go to Thai Cafe for the first time. Like, <laughs> it's a restaurant in Stillwater that had always been there, but just never went, and it took being in kind of this collegiate atmosphere to hear about different places. And if I said I hadn't heard of it, people would say, well, didn't you grow up here? Like, yeah. what's going on? <laughs> so it was a great experience. Yeah. So you talk about the natural progression of you kind of uh, broadening your, your horizons and whatnot, but you're a naturally driven person. Where did that, was that always around growing up, like playing sports or in academics or being around your parents or what was that like? Man, it's interesting looking back. I don't think that I always was a naturally driven person. I think just like all of us when we're growing up, you're trying to figure out who you are. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the main question you're asking kind of before you hit 20 and even into your 20s and sometimes even beyond your 20s. But who am I? Yeah. Because that determines what I do. If I can't figure out who I am, then how can I figure out what steps to take in life, what to go do? Um, And so just like a lot of other young guys and girls, uh, it was sports that I felt like both helped me and hindered me. So I, I I have some very vivid memories growing up playing Little League Baseball where I hated striking out. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely. I hated striking out more than I enjoyed getting a base hit <laughs> or doing something good. Um, and early on, you know, it's the tears. It's the, honestly, it's the embarrassment yeah. of your failure being put on display in front of everybody else, your parents, your friends mm-hmm. that are on your team. And I hated that. And, and so I don't know if anybody tried to help me out of that. Looking back on it now, I needed some help because that stuck with me. And it's still kind of a part of me today, this fear of failure that's greater than this drive to succeed. So this becomes kind of hilarious given what I do now for a living, which I'm sure we'll get to. But yeah, I just, I can't remember exactly what your question was, but that's when I think back on this drive to succeed, it was, it was really a drive not to fail. And that kept me from trying some new things. It probably ties into this whole college search. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, this is the safest thing to do. How yeah. can you fail an on-the-spot admission at lunch? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to send out all these applications and get rejected. Let's just do this. Yeah. Yeah. What about friends growing up? Did you have some really solid friends that you grew up with that really helped? I, I did, yeah. So we have a mutual friend, Jonathan, who I've been friends with for 28, 29 years. Yeah. I mean, really... Ever since we went to preschool together growing up. Um, and so we, it's been really sweet, him especially, to see that we had high school together. We both did farmhouse at OSU together. Mm-hmm. We, and then we had our own two to three years doing different things. And then for about five, six years now, we've both been back in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. 
so I had I had that. I had a couple other friends growing up that I've stayed close with, but what I found is that it's not about trying to stay close with like 10 to 20. It's impossible to do that. It's like yeah. the, God will provide me with a handful for certain seasons and then one to two throughout all of those seasons. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Well, you went to Oklahoma State. Mm-hmm. You said your dad was in the farmhouse. Was that something that was just, let's just go farmhouse because dad was farmhouse? Yeah, I mean, again, looking back on it, I didn't like really experiment. Yeah. Just it's the path that kind of unfolded before me. And again, I'm not saying that's bad Yeah. or you shouldn't go with a path that's just unfolding before you, but it was just, it was the easy thing to do. I went on a few of these dinners with other fraternities, thought a couple of them were weird. One guy <laughs> called me and he had a really weird name and it's like, well, I'm not going to call him back. He's yeah. got a really weird name. It was just stupid reasons looking back on it now. But yeah. um, Jonathan and I kind of decided we were doing this together uh, farmhouse unfolded that way. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I never stepped foot in that old house before <laughs> signing the commitment card, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was a piece of junk for those that haven't stepped yeah, inside the old farmhouse fraternity building that no longer exists. Uh-huh. But it was just the thing that I did. And God is so good and patient and gracious with these decisions because, I mean, that that was probably the reason why college was so transformative mm. because of this decision yeah i'll do farmhouse yeah like that casual shrug of the shoulders yeah i'll do this turned into so much yeah how did you grow in college so some people when they talk about their college experience uh and their growth they point to their like academic education Mm -hmm. um for me not as much it was a fine education but it was the relational fraternity experience, different organizations that you're involved in. Mm-hmm. You're finding your own faith. So for me, that somebody that grew up in a Christian household, just like everybody in college, you're trying to figure out what do I believe about this for myself? Mm-hmm. Um, meeting my wife who came from a different a Christian, but different faith backgrounds, you know, we're navigating. What does this, what does this mean? And so honestly, it's dealing with relationships. I, I look back now and um, so me as a pastor, you deal with a lot of different types of people. Fraternity was exactly that. Yeah. There's so many different types of people and learning how different opinions. To, oh yeah. So yeah. many different opinions. So many opinions that you would just say that's wrong. Yeah. But I still gotta live with you. Mm-hmm. We still gotta live in the same house. So how do we navigate this? That stuff was so valuable. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, you said you were in sports management. Do you finish sports management and you go all the way through? Or? No, I didn't. I quickly realized that I could like sports but not work in sports. Yeah. And again, it's one of these things. I, like I didn't have the wherewithal to know that when I get to college, I'm going to have to pick a major. Just like orientation, I felt like that question dropped on me like a bomb yeah. when I should have been expecting that, like to choose a major. And it's like, ah, oh, I like sports. Let's do sports management. Um, and I liked the classes. They were fine, but I... I felt like it would pigeonhole me a little bit when I started to look for jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did, I was sports management, broadened out to be management. And then I thought, wait, what skills am I going to get if I just do management? Let's add on a marketing uh, minor, an economics minor, um, which is a good thing to do. But I, I felt like my drive to learn really kicked in like late junior, senior year. Um, mm-hmm. Not that it was too late then, but it kind of was. <laughs> yeah. So did you have an idea of what you wanted to do professionally as you got into college and started thinking about the future or 
did you kind of just, let's just see what happens? Or I what had, was that like? I had no clue. No clue? <laughs> I had no idea, man. Okay. This is kind of becoming a recurring theme for me. So I no, I love it, it though, because it, it you can really see a pattern, but then also you can see a change, too. Yeah. I had no idea. Um, my dad is in banking. I never felt like he was trying to push banking on me. You know, some mm-hmm. dads will really want their son to, or daughter to come in and follow in the family business line. And maybe I wanted some more direction or push from my dad looking back on it, but I had no idea. And so when I start to date Sydney, my now wife, uh, our junior year, I felt like I was probably leaning towards getting my MBA at OSU because that seemed like the thing for business students to do when they didn't know what they wanted to do. <laughs> I'll stick around for a couple more years yeah. to get my MBA. Um, but then, you know, she wanted to get married and I wanted to get married and we just didn't want to do the grad school married life. A lot of people do it, but she didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, I got to just get a job. I got to get a job. So you go to the career fairs at OSU and that's how I, that's how I meet the guy from Otis. Okay. Yeah, so transition into after college, you get into professional life. Yeah. You go work for Otis. Yep. How long are you at Otis? And what is Otis for people that don't so know? So Otis is actually a world, it's part of a worldwide Fortune 50 company, um, United Technologies. And it's a kind of an umbrella, big conglomerate. You've got Sikorsky helicopters. You've got carrier air conditioning that falls under this umbrella. And Otis uh, is an elevator company. And so for me to say I had no idea what, what I wanted to do, like, I sure as heck would have not said, oh yeah, elevator industry, that's me, that's what I dream about. Yeah. But at a career fair, a guy that was at the booth for Otis literally kind of pulled me aside. Um, I don't know if he liked my suit or whatever. Just like, hey, what's your name? Uh, and so we got to talking and did the whole interview deal for them and it was a technical sales role. So I wasn't actually working on the elevators. Um, the mechanics that work on the elevators are actually the highest paid blue collar workers. They make like $90,000 a year. Really? So you got to know electrical, mechanical. Mm-hmm. Um, so for six months, I'm training. I'm at job sites with mechanics, helping them put elevators in, going on service calls. But I remember the first, I think it was the first week that I was riding around with one of these mechanics. These guys are, uh, for the most part, middle-aged, yeah. a little later. A little cynical, yeah. a little jaded, uh, just the typical employee that feels like they're being used by corporate America. Mm. And one of these mechanics, as we're riding around, says, why'd you take this job? Really? I say, wait, what? <laughs> what? He said, why'd you take this job? You should have gone to work for one of those oil and gas companies like a Chesapeake or a Devon. And I thought, well, this is not what I want to hear my first week on the job. Yeah. But that feeling quickly set in, even if he hadn't had told me. Um, I just knew, like, Ugh, not really feeling this. And I want to be careful here because I talk to a lot of young people that um, can fall into that feeling trap when it comes to a job or that mm-hmm. passion trap. Not that passion's bad. Mm-hmm. I can explain more about that. Um, but you're not, for the most part, 99% of people are not going to find their dream job right away. Mm -hmm. That first job is not going to be the dream job. In fact, I would say you're probably better set up to succeed if that first job is kind of sucky. Mm -hmm. To have that job that you just kind of plow through where you're learning about yourself. I mean, I was 22. Your your brain is still developing at that point. Like, I need to learn more about myself. I need to just try stuff that early on in life. And so I'm so glad I did. I was there a year and a half um, doing cold calls. I had OS, OSU as one of my clients, so that was kind of cool to be back in Stillwater sure. a day or two or a week after graduating, just because you miss college. You know, that first year is hard. You yeah. 
you uh, see all your younger friends at school posting about homecoming and you're working an eight to five yeah. drinking coffee out of a styrofoam cup. It's like, ah, <laughs> oh, what happened? Yeah. Um, and so a year and a half in a technical sales role. And then, so it's funny, my journey with Otis started at an OSU career fair. A year and a half later, I'm at an OSU career fair for Otis, representing Otis to recruit students. And at the end of that career fair, I'm kind of walking around, cleaning up. And uh, this guy comes towards me and says, hey, what's your name? Uh, I said, my name's Blake. I thought he was a student. And, <laughs> and so I just gave him this spiel about Otis. Well, it turns out that this guy, his name's Spencer, was a recruiter for a company called Joko. And this is just a brilliant move that I would later learn and do yeah. from a recruiter. Well, you're there to recruit students, but you're also there to recruit other professionals. Yeah. And so after I gave him my spiel, I could see him kind of turn his head and smile. I'm like, I'm actually a recruiter. Would you want to get lunch and talk about being a recruiter? I was like, sure, what the heck, yeah. let's do it. So that was how I met Spencer and Joko. Yeah. Well, how did the lunch go? We went, so he came to, he came to Oklahoma City, that's where Sydney and I were at the time, and the lunch was good. I, I had a lot of questions about recruiting, because it's not something that you major in in school. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know a lot about the industry, and so I was asking him questions. He was talking about it. Um, I went to interview in Tulsa. The main thing for Sydney and I was that it was in Tulsa, and that's where her parents, her parents are in Owasso, she grew up in Owasso, and so I like to joke, people that are from the Tulsa area, I know that's you, that there's a magnet, there's just this big underground magnet that draws (laughs) people from Tulsa back to it eventually. Yeah. Um, So that was kind of the reason why we took the job. It's not like I heard one of their responses about recruiting and thought, ah, I'm going to love this. I, again, I had no idea what I was getting into. We just took the step. Yeah. Moved to Tulsa in 2014 um, and then started being a recruiter. What was that experience like? To start being a recruiter? Uh-huh. Um, it was radically different than Otis. So Otis, you've got, it's a part of a Fortune 50 worldwide company, true corporate America. And then you go to a small family, essentially family business that was less than 10 people. Mm-hmm. Um Part of me really, really liked that. I liked the the care, the camaraderie, the culture. I mean, still to this day, that's the best culture that yeah. I've ever been a part of. Yeah. Um, but then there was this part of me felt like it's silly looking back on it now because I've done it again. But I felt like I was starting my life over at 23. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was still a sales job, but yeah. I just you're learning a whole new world in that process of learning. Some of it can be discouraging. Like, oh man, you know, I was. I was getting the hang of the elevator stuff. I, what's the point of all that knowledge now? Now I got to learn a whole new language. I got to I got to learn how to do this thing. And it was a healthy thing to do, but it was a little discouraging. Um, you start to get the hang of it. Mm-hmm. I got pretty good at it, and then life was life was good for Sydney and I. We didn't. We waited about four years to have kids. So those early years of being at Joko, she worked for BOK downtown. We're living the downtown life. I mean, both making decent money. Mm-hmm going out to eat whenever we want. Um, it was a good life. It's called, I don't know if you've heard the acronym DINK. DINK. Double income, no kids. Okay. <laughs> it was the DINK life. The dink Dub- life. <laughs> double income, both of us are working, no kids. So we went to Europe a few times. Uh-huh. We just were living it up, man. We were part of Church on the Move in Tulsa during that time period where she grew up. And um, those are some fun years. Yeah. Well, you get into recruiting because recruiting is something that sometimes you don't often think about. Yeah. But it's a lot of hard work. Yep. What you do. So 
was there times where you were doing work that you're like, maybe that same feeling at Otis, like maybe this isn't something for me or is it something that like I can, I can do this and I enjoy it? That, that was my wrestling. A mix. That was my multi-year wrestling. Yeah. Um, because there were days, there were days when it would be an awesome day mm-hmm. and I wouldn't really know why it was an awesome day. And then there, there, there would be days that were just a struggle. I'd come home and talking to Sydney and it's like, why, why you try to discern why was today a struggle? Just like the really good day. Why was this such a good day? And sometimes the struggles were not because a candidate turned down a job. It wasn't because something blew up. It was essentially an ordinary day. And yet why, why am I coming home feeling kind of burdened out of this? It wasn't a consistent thing. I, again, the culture, the people, oh yeah. my gosh, just made it so much fun. But at the, in the meantime, during this struggle, I, I can feel this other desire coming to the surface. And so I, I'd been a Christian. I'd followed Jesus for, for my whole life before that. But during that time period, I just I come a cop, across a couple key resources, uh, the main one being the Bible Project. Um, for those that don't know, the Bible Project is an online animation studio where they put out short videos about the Bible they also had a podcast, and it was the podcast specifically. And I, I would listen to this, driving to and from work, while I'm working out. And the way that they talked about the Bible lit my imagination on fire. Um, and so Tim Mackey, that's kind of the main nerd behind Bible Project. Anytime he'd recommend a book, I'd buy it, and I'd be reading it. And I'm talking like 600 page, a, a book called The Pentateuch's Narrative. Like, <laughs> The cover looks like somebody made it in Microsoft Word or with Word Art. Uh-huh. And so I'm recruiting eight to five and then reading a 600-page book called The Pentateuch's Narrative by Night. Yeah. And I'm just, I don't really know what to do with that. <laughs> it's like, God, if this is what everybody should get to in life, you got your eight to five and then you're reading this stuff at nighttime, then so be it. But I quickly found out that that was not normal, yeah. <laughs> that, I, that I was weird. And I'd always liked to read before then. But this is where... Um, I honestly felt like it was God stoking the fires for learning and not just saying, hey, every Christian should do this, but maybe you were made for this. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is how I've wired you. And so that, that kind of adds to this wrestling, like, ah, I, I like my job, but there are some days, like, what am I doing? And then I've got this thing over here. Like, what is, what is that supposed to mean? Yeah. And so I feel like I'm just kind of hiking up a mountain with a lot of weight on my back. It's a fun journey, but I just feel like, is, am I going to get to the top? Like, am I going to get to a spot where I can stop and unpack and stay for a while? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, ultimately you wound up getting out of recruiting and starting getting into ministry. Talk about the experience of wrestling with that, like you talk about, and then making the decision and having discernment to make a decision to go into ministry. And also talk maybe about you know some people along the way that helped you yeah. kind of discern that. To me, I can't talk about one without without also talking about the other. Like it, it was a community deal, and I'm totally convinced that that's how it's supposed to be mm. for everybody. You're never discerning on your own. Um, if you do, then you're just in your own echo chamber, just hearing what you want to hear. And so I start to meet some key people along the way in this, we'll call it this wilderness season. Um, I start to go to the mountains in Colorado once a year with a, a group called Mountain Men. It's an official organization now that started at Church on the Move. Um, first trip, I think there's maybe 12 of us that went. And it's a 14er, a hike a 14,000 foot mountain in Colorado. I first went in 2015, so that's a year after 
we moved back to Tulsa a year after I started recruiting. Okay. And so 2015, 2016, 2017, I'm going once a summer to climb a mountain, wrestling with these questions. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the purpose. That's why we went to the mountain together. Some guys, man, they were in a crisis season. Marriage is on the rocks. Um, and so they're going to like hear from God about their marriage. Uh, but then other guys, it's career stuff. You know, God, I feel like I'm at a crossroads. Some guys have got an addiction that they're trying to lay and leave behind. And so they're going to the mountain. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this. I'm, I know you've had these experiences before. When you get around other people and the, the, the focus is so acute on what everybody wants that God can't help but show up. Yeah. <laughs> like when this individual hunger from each of us comes together as a collective hunger, it's a really special thing. So I meet, a, I meet a few key people those years, um, Brian, Lee, and Stephen, who all now work at the church, but that wasn't the case when we started going. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, and so one by one, they started to work for the church. Really? <laughs> so Lee... So it's just natural progression. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Lee is a guy that I've, I, I started to meet from Mountain Men. Um, he was working... He was working just kind of a marketing job. He got employed by Church on the Move. And then Brian was an oil and gas executive here in town. And he started to work at Church on the Move from a volunteer basis. And then um, and then Stephen is kind of a fellow nerd, a kindred spirit that I met okay. that, that was at Church on the Move. So 20, 2018, um, Brian sends me a text. So he's still volunteering at the church. And it's one of these texts that says, hey, I got a question for you when you have a second. I knew exactly what he was going to ask. Really? Without him even having to say, it's like, you're going to ask me to work for the church, aren't you? Really? And, and, it's, and like I knew it was going to happen in a moment. It's really hard to explain the feelings that compressed in reading a text message. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like all, in half a second, I could feel, okay, he's going to ask me to work for the church. Sydney's not going to be happy. We're going <laughs> to talk a while about it, but I feel like it's going to happen. Like I feel all of those feelings in really maybe a half a second. Just yes. in that moment. Yeah. Just in that moment. Um, so to, to back up a little bit at that, at this point in the story, it's impossible to tell it without unpacking this. Uh, you and I were part of the same group that a couple older gentlemen in the Tulsa area, Dave Jewett, I know you've had on the podcast, and Kevin Jordan, had invited some guys in their 20s and 30s to come just talk about what it means to follow Jesus, about how to be a leader. Mm-hmm. And part of that was Dave leading us through his curriculum, Year One Degree. And that's the first time I'd met Dave, first time I'd been exposed to Year One Degree. And um, for those that don't know, your one degree is essentially a, a purpose curriculum to help you figure out how God has wired you up. And it's not just a spiritual gifts assessment. It's a lot of assessments. It involves a coach that's helping you mine out what God has put inside of you. It's a coach to look back at your life with you, connect some dots. Just really, you're the, you're the material. You're the content. And so the coach is helping you. And so I had just, we had just finished that. I kind of had who I am on a page. Um, but I, again, I didn't know what to do with it. I yeah. thought, this is really cool. I, I'm glad that I figured out. Again, you kind of intuit some of this stuff. I, okay, I know I'm a nerd. I know, I know I get energy out of reading and learning and studying, but I'm a recruiter. Yeah. I'm a recruiter. And this stuff drives me and energizes me. And so that helped me look back on those days that I had at Joko that were really good days. It helped me figure out why those were really good days. Mm -hmm. And then the days that were a struggle, it helped me look back and figure out why was that day a struggle? 
So Dave categorizes these things as greens, yellows, and reds. Oh, so the really good days, they were full of greens. Yeah. I was able to do some research and study and in its own unique context in recruiting. But then the struggle days, I'm using reds, and it feels like a drain. And over time, as Dave would explain, if you have way more reds in your life than greens, you get into a net negative, which feels like you're quite literally bearing a weight or a burden and you're trying to figure out what it is. And, and so that's, that just really helped me. But still, I'm at this point like, okay, what do I do with this? Yeah. The next week is when Brian sent me the text. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. So I don't, know, <clears throat> I don't know if I'd say I wouldn't have taken the job had it not been for your one degree and all that stuff. But it certainly gave me the confidence to keep moving forward to with move it. Forward. Yeah. And I guess you kind of answered it right there. But when you go through that process and you, you get to see a thorough kind of evaluation of yourself and your gifts and abilities, yeah. did you have any inclination to get into ministry without him even texting or like, do you think, Oh, well these could maybe align with ministry or these yeah. could align with sales or something? Or was it like, I don't, I just don't know what to do with it. Yeah. So a couple of interesting memories. Um, when I was in college at OSU, the, the church I was going to at the time, at the time, Sunnybrook, I was helping out in the junior high ministry. And I remember this was after one Wednesday night, kids leave, so you're cleaning up, picking up chairs, stacking chairs. And as I'm stacking chairs, Drew, who had first asked me to volunteer, who had become a good friend, a good mentor, I remember him looking at me and saying, there's a future ministry worker right there. Mm -hmm. Like out, just kind of tongue in cheek, just not meaning to have any significance, but it stuck with me. Stuck with you, yeah. I had no idea why. Like why... I'm cleaning up chairs, and I kind of as a joke, he says, there's a future ministry worker right there. Yeah. And I think the reason why it stuck with me is that even before then, there's just this, uh, can ministry be in my future feeling? So had that not been there, his comment may not have stuck, but I, you can see the puzzle pieces starting to take shape. I remember when I called my mom to let her know, hey, I'm a pastor now. <laughs> she said, just very casually and kind of matter-of-factly, I always knew you'd be a pastor. Really? It's like, what? You never told me that. Yeah. And you never said that before. And I think that was the kindness of God to just con confirm, mm -hmm. you know, right after making this decision. Because it was a big decision, not right? just for me, but for Sydney and I. Yeah. We, I was making good money at Joko. Yeah. She was able to stay at home with our firstborn. Just three months before we made that switch. Yeah. We'll talk about that too, because that's something I think people really struggle with is the financial you know, burden that we put on ourselves of what we have or what we want. And then making a step into something that maybe there's a little more uncertainty on the future, not like yep. you had before. Yep. Talk about that experience and processing through that with yourself and then also with her and how you guys work through that to make the decision that yep. you made. I think so many of us are captivated and held captive by the American success narrative. Um, honestly, it's another gospel. This idea that your life is just going to keep going up and to the right. And of course, that includes money. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Promotion after promotion. More money, more money. Another house. Nicer cars. And even if you wouldn't admit to being held captive by it, it's still, it's so in the water. Mm -hmm. It's so in the culture that it can seep down into your being and you not be aware of it. Mm -hmm. Like that's when you know something's really in the culture. And so I started to notice that it, as much as I would have said, I, I don't, I'm not uh, greedy. I don't love money. You know, the more money I would make Joko, like, oh, this feels good. Yeah. The, what we're able to do, the trips that we're able to take. 
you, you know, we had friends that weren't able to take that. And I mean, if I'm to be honest, the ugly part of me is like, I kind of like being able to do stuff. Sure. That's a little bit nicer than your friends. It's always in comparison to somebody else. Mm -hmm. You never love money just because it feels good to you. You like it because of how it makes you feel in relation to other people. Mm. And so honestly, us making that decision, because we, we got the paper out. Can this be, can we do this? Yeah. Because if you have to go back to work, this isn't from God. Like we felt like he led us to you staying at home. He's not going to lead you to going back to work three months after this. Mm -hmm. Did the math. It's like, okay, technically speaking, we can do this. So let's do this. And I'm not kidding you making that decision for me, especially you'd have to ask Sydney. She has her own journey. I felt such a freedom. Yeah. To kind of die to that success narrative. And it's really helped me in my three years in ministry because I haven't been in a rush. At least I don't think there some days are better than others or worse than others to like be a senior pastor of a campus before I'm 30 mm -hmm. or to do something else. I, I really experienced it, experienced what it was like to die to something and have new life on the other side and not be held captive by this upward mobility thing. Yeah. So you don't yet you that you had that freedom through that process. Yep. So you don't have that, uh, I guess more so it comes along with trusting God yep. and what he wants for you. And then he gives you freedom along the way. And I'm sure you have maybe challenges along the way too at times, but when you made that decision, he gave you the freedom to move forward. Totally. And I think that's how he works. He's oftentimes he's giving you an, a test or an opportunity, kind of like how this Bible nerd is going to come out for a second. <laughs> okay. But Adam and Eve, I mean, the most famous story, you don't have to be a Christian to know this story. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God has given them a test. You've got two trees in front of you. You've got a tree of life. Man, eat of this tree. In fact, eat of all these other trees. Well, this one other tree, don't eat from it. Just trust me on this. And I think all of us have these Garden of Eden moments mm. when you've got two trees in front of you, and it's a quest for the good life. Am I going to, and like God wants to give you the good life. That's the thing that we all need to realize is that he wants to give stuff to you. I'm not talking necessarily about material financial stuff, but are you going to get it on his terms or on your own terms? And I feel like that moment for us trying to make this decision, you're, we're in the, you're back in the garden. Okay. How am I going to go about doing this yeah. on God's terms or on his, or on our terms? Our terms tend to be quicker. The timeline's shorter. We're in control of everything. Yeah. His terms, it's like, hey, I'm not telling you <laughs> what's coming. I'm not telling you what the timeline is. I'm just asking you to take a step and yeah. trust me with this. And oddly enough, there's more freedom in taking that step without knowing the, the big picture than to take a step where you know everything that you can control. Mm -hmm. It's hard to explain, but it was a real freedom in oh, that yeah. season. We'll talk about control for a second because that's something that everyone deals with. Like, it's such a huge problem. I, I struggle yep. with it, too, at times. Many times, actually, not at times. <laughs> but there's also experiences that you've had where, um, you know, talk about, you know, Sydney's experience yep. um, at the lake real yep. quick. So I think control is an illusion. Mm. Um, if you think about what an illusion is, it's not real. And psychologists have come out and said that, um, I can't remember the origin of the study, but that humans only control about 15% of what they think they control. <laughs> yeah. 15%. Yeah. So that tells me that it's an illusion. I can think that I'm in control of more than I actually am. So the story that you mentioned a month after we made the decision to go into ministry, we were at, the, we were at Grand Lake for a 4th of July weekend 
and uh, we're, we're in this period without insurance because we just switched jobs. Um, I mean, it was like a 90 day waiting period or something like that. And so we're at the lake and we sat, Rose, our firstborn, we put her down for a nap. And so Sydney and I go outside and um, sitting in a couple of hammocks that were on her parents' property. And she was sitting in one hammock and I go to sit in the other. And as soon as I sit in my hammock, I notice that I go straight to the ground. And I was like, that's weird. And it's, as I'm having this thought, I see something just start to crash down out of the corner of my eye. And it was the tree that the hammock had been connected to. And we didn't know that that tree had rotted out. Nobody had sat in the hammock over the course of the summer. So this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, that tree hits Sydney in the head as, she, as she's sitting on this other hammock. And it knocks her out cold. I mean, this all happened so fast. It, it's hard to even really go, go back to that moment because you've out of control is what you feel. Yeah. It's like if I would have had a few more seconds, I could have ran into the tree and knocked <laughs> it out, like literally had no control. Sure. And so a, she eventually comes to, but says she can't move. Um, out of it, obviously had a concussion. It hit her in the head, um, on the ground. And so the helicopter comes into the lake. They fly her to St. Francis in Tulsa. I, I drive to St. Francis. Um, and we find out she's got an unstable fracture in her spine yeah. at her L1 vertebra. And so at that point, if it's a stable fracture, you just stay in bed for weeks and it, it heals on its own but because it was unstable. They do a spinal fusion. And so she had a spinal fusion surgery at, I think she was 27 really? at the time. Um, after that for six weeks, she's in a back, back brace. Can't really parent our one-year-old. I had just started a new job. We didn't have insurance. It's just like all of these things are just like, I thought we made the right decision. God, like what yeah, the heck? Yeah. We took a step. We followed you. And, and that was a really hard season. Yeah. Talk about, you know, she was life flighted from Grand Lake to Tulsa, which is about a, an hour and a half yeah. hour drive. What was it like for you driving from the lake to the hospital? Yeah. What was going through your head? To be honest, I don't think that I said, listened, prayed anything on that hour and a half drive. Um, I think at that point, the feeling I would describe, uh, or I would use to describe it is just, numb. I was a little numb. It's like, what What the heck? I, I, I didn't know what was going on. You know, I don't have a communication to the helicopter. I don't know how she's doing at that moment. I, I, I didn't think that she would die. I didn't think she was at risk of dying at that point. But I just kind of slipped into this state of, like, I couldn't really process or comprehend what was going on. And, like, I didn't, I didn't even want to try until I saw her and got some information. Um, I, I really don't think, I think it was a completely quiet drive the whole way there. Mm. Yeah. That's, uh, that experience in itself is very unique. That doesn't yeah. happen a lot. But having to sit there and watch your spouse be life flatted out and yeah. have a drive to think about everything. And yeah. Yeah. All, all this to say, too, you just accepted the job recently. Yeah. And you're sitting there and you feel like this freedom. Yeah. Yet at the same time, now you're like, why, why is this happening again? Yeah. Like, what, what's the reason for this? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, and so I've, again, Bible nerd, theology nerd, you know, I've, I've been a part of theological camps that say that everything in this world is controlled by God, ultimately from his hand. Um, and I've been around people that say, no, it's not. Like, some of this stuff is Satan. Sure. And I've been around people that tend to see Satan in everything. It's yeah. like, that's a little crazy. Um <laughs> But yeah, we could have we could have 
gone crazy trying to figure out why this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people have, some people have lost their faith over it. Um, and we just were determined not to do that. Still determined to be honest with God and our, because both of us are Jesus people. And we believe that because of that, you process everything with him. You don't leave some stuff out of it. So we're walking through all this together. For Sydney, it was hard. You know, what is this? How can I have confidence that this won't happen again to me? Mm. You know? Yeah. Well, how long did it take for her to actually recover fully? I would say after the six weeks that she was in the back brace, you could see her walking around and not think anything had happened. Mm-hmm. But I could, I could tell at the end of the day, parenting is exhausting, period. Yeah. Without any other physical ailments. Yeah. But you add a spinal fusion to it. Yeah. And she was tired at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, Rose at one is wanting to be picked up all the time. Um, and to see Rose develop a really strong bond with me and Sydney and her mom rather than her. I mean, she's her mom, so she had a bond with her. But that was emotionally mm-hmm. painful for her. There were just so many different emotions that she's dealing with in that season. She can't really think ahead to, okay, I'm under 30 and I have a spinal fusion. What's life going to be like decades from now? She's thinking, man, I'm missing out on so much in the present, mm-hmm. in the moment. What do I do with that? Yeah. It was hard. Yeah. Well, talk, I mean, did you have a sense of peace with God through that experience, or was it a wrestling? It, that was such an interesting season for me. So just started being a ministry. Um, so you had, like, during the day, I'd have this exhilarating feeling of starting my life over for the third time. <laughs> so... <laughs> We had elevators, got to learn all about traction elevators, hydraulic elevators, start life over with recruiting. Okay, what's the difference between contract, direct hire, learning these employers? Mm-hmm. Okay, now ministry, which is a whole other ball game. Um, recruiting might be the fastest paced industry in the world. I'm sure there are faster ones, but to me, it just felt so fast paced. Yeah. I go into ministry and it's like, oh yeah, we can postpone that for three months or we can... And it just it took me a long time to adjust to that speed. Um, I knew that ultimately this is where I belong. I don't belong in a fast-paced environment. I can turn on the competitive muscle when I need it. Mm-hmm. But like I was made to be a pastor. I just I started to feel that in the early months. So I'm experiencing that during the day. I'm getting some opportunities to start speaking, which it like I, I feel like I'm using all that stuff that I found out in your one degree. It's I'm, I'm using it. More days are green. More days are energizing than others. And then I'm going home to a tired wife and taking care of a one-year-old and just sitting afresh with the fact that, like, we really don't know what's in the future for her and her back. So many different emotions in that season. Um, God was faithful. He saw us through. Even though we were without insurance, like, he... we. The bills are taken care of through a different insurance situation that happened. Um, and so that was the challenge. Where's our, where's our attention going to go? And I think that's such a key thing for anybody in all seasons is where's your attention? You go through a really hard season, your attention can drift and just keep drifting to what has gone wrong, what you want to fix instead of what God is providing in the present yeah, and the people that he's putting in front of your path. Okay. If I can redirect my attention to this, then maybe I can see how God has continued to arrive rather than continue to be absent. Mm. Um, and that's a discipline that does not come easy Yeah, because we want to focus on the bad. So you say it's a discipline. How do you like practically speaking, how do you create that discipline every single day? Yeah. 
Um, so for me to kind of transition into routines and habits, it has to start first thing in the morning for me, mm-hmm. um, where I am. So as a Christian, I believe that I am actually incapable of seeing these things in my own power. I'm incapable of being aware of God on my own. I need his help. And so I ask for him to show me throughout the day. Okay. I, if it's true that you are always with me, if you are always speaking, then when I feel like you're absent or when I feel like I can't hear you, the problem's not on your end. It's my awareness that I need to, I need to work on. And so it's, it's both pleading for him to show me, but then it's also taking the responsibility on my end to not be face down on this thing. All the, because I can pray as much as I want. God, show me how you're working. Yeah. Speak to me. But if I am on this for 12 hours a day, that's essentially me negating the prayer, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I think that that's how God works. Yes, you plead for him to do what only he can do. But then I'm going to hold up my end of the deal and actually try to be aware. I'm going to sit in silence for a few minutes. I'm going to take a walk just to be clear. Take, I mean, I, I'm sure you've noticed it too, but the past 15 years or so, ever since smartphone and and the increasing amount of technology since then, there's so much noise that gets sucked into our head and it takes a while to get that noise out. That's why I like going to Colorado once a year with no cell reception, just you in the quiet outdoors. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has to go climb a mountain. Not everybody has to love the outdoors, but I really believe, especially for those that follow Jesus, you've got to have some routine of disengagement from your phone, from all of this other noise, all of these other voices, really, in order to hear the voice that you say you care about most. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, is there anything that a routine in the morning where you wake up, get in the Word, take some time to to be clear and present with Him, is there anything else that you do on a daily basis that you can share? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm sure, I mean, you're a podcast junkie, you started a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a podcast junkie. I really don't listen to a lot of music, uh-huh. in the car especially. I tend to always listen to podcasts. When I'm working out, I listen to podcasts. But every once in a while, uh, when I get in the car, I'm excited to listen to a recent Bible Project podcast or something else. I'll get this little nudge uh-huh. to not play it, just to drive in silence. Mm. Now, this sounds like there was a point in time in which people only drove in silence, yeah. in which silence was normal. Yeah. And yet now it feels countercultural to not play anything in my car, to not have input is one of my strengths on the strengths finder assessment, which is a good thing. Like I, I'm why God has wired me to, to receive things, to go after ideas and podcasts and books. But just as key is to have this discipline of disengagement, to listen to that nudge and be like, okay, I'm just going to be okay driving in silence for 15 minutes. It doesn't mean that I'm going to get an audible word from God, but it's about keeping that habit up of being okay with silence, of being okay with unproductivity for a season. Mm -hmm. Because when you start to do stuff that you love, like being a pastor and learning, productivity feels a lot like godliness. Okay, as long as I'm like doing stuff, like I'm doing this for the kingdom, this is godly stuff, but disengagement is just as godly. We see that rhythm in Jesus' life. He'd go away. Mm-hmm. He'd come back from ministry. He'd go away. He'd come back from ministry. So if if the Son of God did that, yeah. um, I don't think I'm above that. I oh, think yeah. that actually that means that I need to do that in my life in order for me to be fruitful in yeah. my marriage and parenting and ministry. Yeah, that. for sure. And that's something, you know, as you say that, I'm sitting there thinking about myself when I drive. Because I drive a lot for, for my work. Yeah, <clears throat> And I feel like it's probably like a guy 
I'm not a big coffee drinker, but a guy who's addicted to caffeine and he gets off caffeine, he says, yeah. I need some coffee. <laughs> he just got the shakes. I That's know. probably how I'd be I in know. the car if I sit there and say, I need 15 minutes of just quiet. Yeah. So they're like, I got to take, I got to consume something. That's why we yeah. check our phones at stoplights. It's just, we, we're so unaccustomed to silence and boredom. Yeah. I remember this thing called boredom when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> when you had to just find something to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> And you didn't have uh, a podcast or, you know, you didn't have the TV on, you're outside. And what I've experienced, I mean, you think back to when you're a kid, you're at your most creative when you're bored. Mm-hmm. And, and I think so, so many of us are kind of stunted in, in growth in any area of life, not necessarily spiritual growth. And it's because we aren't letting ourselves be bored to just daydream and yeah. dream a little bit and go like go for a walk and or go to a coffee shop. And sit at a table and just drink coffee. <laughs> don't be on, don't be on your phone. Yeah. Don't read a book. Don't talk. Just go like sit and drink coffee. Yeah. And see what the wonder of liquid grace can do to your brain. Uh-huh. Ca- caffeine. Um, and it's I still have so much work to do on this. As I'm sharing, it's like yeah, this is why I need to continue doing it because that's when God can help you connect dots on certain things. That's where yeah. fresh ideas come from. Just a place of reflection in general is healthy. No matter what your faith is, if you have faith or no faith, setting aside time to reflect on life is a lost art. You look back across any, all religions, all Greek systems of thought, the Stoics, there's a place of stillness and reflection. In other words, it's almost like that Jesus guy was onto something Yeah. <laughs> with his rhythm. Yeah. Well, if you, next time you go to a coffee shop, look around and see who's just drinking yep. coffee. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably very very small, right? But it is. It's something that you're right. When we are still and we're bored, our mind works. Yep. Um, and so for the people that haven't tried this before, um, it can be really scary mm-hmm. because what happens in those moments when you intentionally unplug, disconnect, uh, your life has a chance to catch up to you. And so things that you've been suppressing, things that you've been stuffing beneath the surface, whether it's a relational issue, whether it's some unhealthy habit you know you have, that stuff tends to pop up. And at that moment, I feel like what a lot of us do is like emotional whack-a-mole. It's like, oh, nope, got to get rid of that, got to get rid of that. And we do that by getting back on our phone, by just this schizophrenia of activity. In our environment, too. Yeah. I mean, that's it plays a huge part. Like, yeah. we're... Trying to be still, yet our phone might go off, yeah. or the people around us yes. are working, talking, yeah. constantly doing something. Yeah. Like our, our world, our culture is taught to be busy, to be achieving, to be yeah. active, to be transitioning, like you said, yep. always be growing on that, that, that upward curve yep. and getting better and better, smarter and smarter, more money, yes. more things. Yes, which and, demands more activity on my part. That yeah. stuff isn't just going to happen. I've got to go out and get it. You got to go get it. Yep. You got to go get it. And that doesn't insinuate taking a step back and being still yep. like stillness is totally yes. opposite. Like, yes. and if many people have that mindset, that stillness is like going backwards. Yep. So you don't, you don't feel like you're going where you exactly. want to or need to be going. Exactly. So it's counterculture. Like you talked about. Totally. So I think Christian or not, um, if you never take time to reflect, if you never take time to, when that mole pops up to stare at the mole, be like, okay, what's going on mole? What's, what do I need to deal with in my life? <laughs> Christian or not, like that will ultimately take you out mm-hmm. if you don't deal with it. Um, and as a Christian, I believe that I never do that alone. I'm always doing that with God in community with other people to help process this stuff. That's the only healthy way in my mind to do it because mm-hmm. I don't have the full perspective. Um, 
that's become imperative. Yeah. That's where Sydney's been such a gift to me. Just bringing, hey, this came up today. It's like, I don't know what to do with this. This relationship deal, we actually have just talked about this past couple days. And she's so helpful for me just to, just, just to look at it. And whereas I'm tempted just to get the, get, get the mole out of here. Yeah. 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 Well, it's kind of like doing the confrontation. Yeah. Right. Uh, I know I don't really like confrontation that much, so it's easy to sit there and kind of try to pass off right. on it. And in the same sense, those types of things that are issues in our own life, we want to just like whack them all, hide yeah. them, put them down, show them away. But really you get the biggest breakthroughs when you handle the confrontation, when you yeah. handle the issues and you move forward. Um, and that is such a big key. Also, I want to touch on discipline too, because you're someone I've known you for a long time, but you're a very disciplined person, I would say, from my perspective. Mm-hmm. So how, how did you, or how do you have that makeup to be disciplined at the things you want to be disciplined at? Yeah, I think part of it is just, um, part of it's how I'm wired. Some people are not wired to be disciplined. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean they can't have any discipline in their life, but I thrive off of consistency. And so one thing that I've noticed for me is, um, I like to exercise. I'm not crazy about it, but I will notice if I go two to three days and stuff comes up and I can't do it, it just throws yeah. muscles aren't as big. <laughs> it just throws me out of whack. Yeah. And Sydney can notice it. It's like I, it's like forgetting to brush your teeth for three days in a row. It's like I, it's something's my life's going to heck. Like yeah. what is what is happening? Um, and so some stuff I just have to have. Um, I have to have in there almost like autopilot. This is why Steve Jobs wore the same thing every single day. Mm. He's got to use so much creative willpower and muscle during his day. I can't spare any creativity on thinking what I'm going to wear. And people make fun of him, but I see now like there's something to that. Genius to it. There's some genius to it. So how can I, um, how can I set these things up? Almost like you know, when you think about the business world, like trying to get some passive income. Just set stuff in motion where I don't have to think about, set it and forget it, what people do with investments. That's kind of how I view habits or some of, some of those habits. Mm-hmm. Now, reading my Bible is not a set it and forget it habit. Yeah. But other routines, I just want it to be a part of my day that frees me up to be creative and to not have to worry about this other stuff. Um, I do think that everybody has a couple... This comes from James Clear, I see you have right here, yeah. uh, the keystone habits. Things that belong at the center of your day that without it, the day starts to crumble. And so I think there's some Christian keystone habits, Bible and prayer. Um, some people would say making their bed is a keystone habit, mm-hmm. that by doing that, they set themselves up to succeed the rest of the day. Yeah. For me, exercising is one of those, like, oh, I feel like I'm just in a good rhythm. Mm-hmm. If I keep that as a part of my day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, one of the things too is when we think about discipline, uh, sometimes people think, well, it's boring. Yeah. Um, but yet sometimes the boring, most consistent things lead us to the most growth. Totally. Yeah. Uh, Short term and long term. But are you someone who naturally is always, is your mind always thinking all over the place? So how do you like hone in those thoughts to be more disciplined and consistent. So I'll take kind of one habit as a case study, uh, reading for me. Um, I think it's been, so I've always been a reader, but since about 2015, I have on a notes doc kept track of books that I read. Yeah. Um, as a way of keeping myself accountable, it kind of feels good to add another book to the list. Yeah. Um, and so I all, I have, I have never not been reading a book 
since 2015. Yeah. Like, if somebody were to come to me and say, hey, what are you reading? I would always have an answer. There's never been a season when I've said, oh, I'm not reading anything right now. It's just, again, it goes back to it's both how God has wired me and it's a discipline that I have cultivated. It's both. And I feel like we all have those. And so for me, um, it looks like reading... Uh, so I'll read my Bible in the morning and I'll have a book that I'll read in the morning that's more geared towards Bible, theology, Christian growth, and then some other book throughout the day or the evening, whether it's a cultural thing, biography, a fiction book. But I've got these rhythms that are always going. And so that's another keystone habit for me. If I haven't been able to read in a few days, I don't feel like myself. Yeah. But it has, for me, this is a type of habit that it, it works like compound interest. I may read a book and it not benefit me until four years from now. Mm -hmm. And yet over the course of reading all these different perspectives, all these different people, you become wise, which enables you to take ideas, put them together, connect different dots. As a pastor, I think reading is absolutely necessary because especially when it comes to reading, not just the scriptures, but other books, you're trying to lead people into the good life, according mm -hmm. to Jesus. But that comes through listening to what's going on in culture and all these different things. Um, so I don't know if that hits on kind of what you're what you're asking. Yeah, absolutely, it does. And I have a question for you on the books. Are you are you one of those guys who do you read in increments, or do you like man? If you pick up a book, you want to finish it. Um, I, if I pick up a book, I want to finish it. Yeah. Partly because I want to add it to that list yeah. <laughs> that I finished it. Well, it's funny. I'm very similar to you. And so I was going to ask you too, is there ever such thing as too much reading? Because I know my wife tells me yeah. there's too much reading. <laughs> so when she says that to you, what's her reasoning? What is she afraid of? Oh, I think What does I, she think you're going to get into? I think I just read too much. <laughs> is it because she wants you to spend time with her? Like Probably. That's okay. probably, okay. yeah, probably better. So that's probably it for Sydney when she says that. Um, yeah. I think there is, and this is where it depends on your um, your faith, your worldview. So for those of us that follow Jesus, we believe that any good thing, if not managed, can become a God thing. Mm -hmm. And like that can be the extent of who I am as a person, is what I read and what I know. And for sure, that's a temptation. But I think that's the temptation with any gift, anything that you're good at. All of it has to be managed. But I believe that all of it's been given by God, which mm -hmm. means that as we cultivate it, as we invite his help, um, that it can be maintained at a healthy pace. But I, I think that there could be a thing. It's too yeah. much reading, too much input. Yeah. Well, it, it leads me into an, another thing called balance. You know, I'm a big John Wooden person, love John Wooden, and he talks a lot about balance, but there's lots of people out there that also say, well, balance is not necessarily something you can achieve in life. Sure. It's more of a juggle or it's more of a you know, seesaw yeah. type deal. What do you think about balance and how do you achieve your idea of balance in your life? Yeah, it is, in, it is interesting because I've heard the same <clears> thing, <throat> um, that it's a myth. Mm -hmm. When people talk about, this is what I always heard as a recruiter. I just want some good work-life balance. Yeah. Like that's such a cliche at this point. It's like, what really what you mean by that is you want to have a lot of time off. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to have to work very hard. Uh -huh. You just want a lot of freedom to go do whatever the heck you want. Um, when I think about balance, I want to think about it more in the long view, more over the course of 10 years. Because, so I've got two young kids, uh, almost a four-year-old, almost a two-year-old. Balance? When you're trying to be a parent to young kids, there's no such thing. Yeah. There is survival. There is, survival. Keep, there is keeping your head above water. <laughs> and, and so I look ahead to people that are becoming empty nesters. 
Um, my friends, Brian Lee and Steven are on a different stage of parenting. They can say yes to stuff that I still have to say no to. Um, and so I think when it comes to balance, I want to take the long view. I want to make the appropriate sacrifices in this season. I think balance is determined, especially if you're married, balance has to be something that's agreed upon between you and your spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're parenting young kids, it's like, yeah, she, so Sydney stays at home and just yesterday, I took the girls to Owasso so she could have the day off. She went to a dinner with a friend last night, so I did everything with the girls. She got a complete day off, but she's still not in balance because she watches these girls all these days. She needs like weeks off to get in balance. So yeah, take the long view. Um, Seasons are going to change, and that's when stuff kind of evens out. It's not going to be one day after the next. Sure, yeah. Well, you talk about uh, those those guys at the church that you were on Mountain Men with that are also in the church now. Um, and we've talked about before to your high school, you had some really solid friendships. Talk about how those men at the church that you've gotten to know that you work with now on a consistent basis. Uh, what have you learned from those guys? Yeah. So I've got, I feel like I've had the privilege of growing really close with a group of guys that are 10 to 15 years ahead of me that aren't quite a father figure yet aren't quite an older brother figure. It's, it's this really sweet spot to where they are undoubtedly ahead of me in some areas. Um, and yet they have sons that are like 10 to 15 years behind me. So I'm not quite, you know, their son, uh, younger brother. So we've got sure. these three stages. So I'm able to pour into their sons. They're able to pour into me. Um, some of them have made some epic mistakes in their life. Uh, I mean, openly, they would admit that. And they, just like a Dave Jewett, other people... They're just determined to not see that with me. And they're determined to fan my gifts into flame, which is so convicting. Like they, this, this group of guys that are about 10 to 15 years older than me, they so eagerly celebrate me and they want to see me succeed and have a good marriage and be a good pastor and have opportunities to do that. Um, that has meant the world to me. Uh, yes, I've, I've been mentored by them. But to see how people older than me who are still in the game, who still are kind of vying for the same ministry opportunities I am, Mm -hmm. look at somebody younger and say, we need to get him more speaking opportunities or we need to be doing more for him. Um, I'm determined to do that for other people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's hard because uh, I'm such an achiever. I want the opportunities. I want to prove that I'm valuable. And so if somebody else is having an opportunity, I can feel diminished. It's not true. When somebody else wins... Especially in ministry, I win. Mm-hmm. It's not a zero-sum game. Um, so that in particular, seeing how quickly they celebrate me and lift me up and push me into opportunities, God has used that in a big way, especially me walking into my calling as a pastor. One thing that I've thought about, um, because this idea of giving feedback to other people is really popular, do something, let's give them feedback, give them feedback, give them feedback. You can never feedback somebody into their calling you encourage somebody into their calling. Mm -hmm. And now is there a time for feedback? Yes. If I preach a sermon and it sucks, I want somebody to tell me like, let's talk about how to improve it. But that's not, that's not going to get me into my calling. I'm encouraged into my calling. And when I think about the word encourage, I think about like quite literally reaching into somebody and pulling out things, putting it in front of their face and saying, you were made for this. Mm -hmm. Do more of it. Go after it. And that's what people have had to do with me. Yeah. And it's affected me in a big way. So if I'm to go back at 
Little League Baseball Blake, furious about striking out, fear of failure. I remember ninth grade trying out for the freshman baseball team. I had a horrible tryout. And that like messed with me at an existential level, this fear of not making the team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I, I feel like I was always going to make the team. I, it, it was a tryout, but a small town, so you know who kids are. Like I was going to make the team. But I, that messed with me at such a deep level because of this fear of failure, um, because I didn't know who I was. Now I look at who God has surrounded me with, and I'm not... I'm not bombarded with feedback. I'm bombarded with encouragement. Even when I don't do well at something, a sermon isn't as great. It's still this encouragement when people are drawing things out of me, and that has changed me. Mm. Um, it's nothing in myself that, like, I haven't changed myself. It's been God through this community of people that have said, that's not you. You're really good at this. Do more of it. I don't know if I feel like I don't care. Do it again. Yeah. yeah. It, it, that changes somebody. Absolutely. Oh, there, there's so many good things in what you just said. Um, but one thing, another John Woodenism, mm. is that the, the smallest deed is greater than the best intention. Mm. Yep. And so when you think about what you just said about encouraging somebody, like when we have those inclinations, like this guy has a gift to do something like this, or this girl has a gift to do something like yep. that, encourage that person. Like speak life into them. Yes. That encourages them to do what they're gifted yep. at. Right, because so yes. many people go through life, um, you know, sleepwalking in yep. a sense because we feel like we fall into our culture of being successful, driving, making money, and that's all. There's nothing wrong with that, yep. but when you're not utilizing the abilities that you have, whether you're a Christian or not, it's a natural giftedness and makeup that we all have that we can see in each individual yep. that we're around. We can see the giftings and the abilities that they have. Yep. Like, but encourage them. Yes. And unless, simple. Unless somebody's a sociopath, <laughs> there's always kind of guilt and shame around the gifts that you feel like you've been given. Yeah. Whether it's um, a comment a teacher made towards you or a coach made towards you, you feel like the godly thing to do is to kind of suppress that. Like, ah, I'm not going to try again. I don't want to feel like the center of attention in using my gifts. And I think that's the voice of, in the, in the tradition of, the Christian faith, that's the voice of the enemy. That's the voice of, of Satan that's trying to keep these things suppressed when God wants to draw them out. Um, one of my favorite quotes comes from a, a church father by the name of Irenaeus. And he said, so the, he talks about the glory of God. Yeah. The glory of God is a super Christianese word. Like we talk about it in church, but who really knows what the glory of God is? Like, uh -huh. do we know what we're talking about? And he says, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Mm. I like that a lot. That's the glory of God is when a human being is fully alive. And it's one of those, you know how you'll hear quotes sometimes and you know like that's BS <laughs> or like that is that resonates with me at such a deep level. Uh -huh. Well, the latter is what happened when I heard that or read that for the first time. I was like, yes, I know that to be true. Mm -hmm. I think that God gets glory when I am most alive, when I am using my gifts, when I am encouraging somebody else to use their gifts. Like God gets deep satisfaction out of that. Absolutely. No, and, and it's not to suppress those things. It's like jump in it, dive yeah. into it. And uh, I love that, that quote right there. That's yeah. a great quote. Um, one thing that Dave Jewett has said before, I don't know if he has pitched this to you, because it goes back to you know being fully alive. He asked, name five men that are finishing their life well. And most people can't say that because 
unfortunately, I feel like many people are not necessarily fully alive. Yep. Um, yep. They've been dead for a long time now. Yeah. It's like the walking... I think a lot of churches is like the walking dead. You got people that are... They could be in their midlife, in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, but they've given up on purpose. They've given up on God having gifted them with anything because it, nobody has encouraged anything. Maybe in their 20s, too. Yeah. Yes. You know? I mean, it really can. But how do people... How does that not happen? Yeah. This goes back to, you know, another thread throughout you and I talking here today is... Like there's stuff that only God can do, but then there's a responsibility on our part. And so I think the responsibility on our part when it comes to this particular is getting embedded in a community. For those of us that follow Jesus, that is a local church. And it's not just attending. It is developing relationships that span across Sunday morning. Nobody can know your gifts from a distance. Nobody can know your gifts just by walking in and out of service on a Sunday morning. Um, People know your gifts by you sharing your life story, mm-hmm. <laughs> sharing your fears, sharing your ninth grade freshman baseball tryout stories. Yeah. And, and they have the perspective then to say, you've adopted that as your life narrative. Blake, you have adopted this fear of failure thing that has defined you. What's up with that? How can we not let this define you? Yeah. And it's a painful process. It hurts to admit like, yeah, that's me. I've got a fear of failure. Um, but it's a necessary pit <laughs> to go through or necessary grave to go in to come out the other side as a new person. And that only happens in community. I'm, I'm 100% convinced of that. Yeah. And it, it's amazing too to see how much of issues that we have with ourselves originate from our upbringing yep. and being young. Just yep. simple little stories. So that's why it's so important to reflect, think back to those those instances or those life-changing events that didn't seem so life-changing at the time, but naturally oh, yeah. work uh, a lot of things going wrong in for your life. For better or for worse. Yeah, for better or for worse. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, real quick, because I want to honor your time to get out of here. And I knew this would be great. I didn't know it would be this great. <laughs> so I, I could sit here and talk to you forever. <laughs> Same. But um, one of the things, you've had a couple experiences recently that are another just kind of, uh, it's kind of like a gut punch at least a little bit. Can you talk about a few of those things? Um, in as much detail or a little sure. detail as you want to. Yeah. Um, so like I said, we've got two girls, Rose and Joy, and they are so much fun. Um, we, we didn't know if we'd stop at two kids. We didn't really know how many kids that we'd want to have. So it took us by surprise that last August, um, Joy wasn't even one yet. But I get a call from Sydney, and she is bawling as she's called me. And I'm like, what is going on? And she tells me that she's pregnant. Um, and the bawling was because like, this is when it comes to kids, that's not a good thing to be surprised by. (laughs) Joy was a surprise. So we planned Rose. Uh Joy was a surprise. Rose and Joy were only two years apart. Um, people do it closer, but like that was a lot. Yeah. Um, two kids in diapers. We just, we were ready for a break before we started to have kids. She calls me that she's pregnant. Um, eventually we got excited. (laughs) It took a few days. It took a few weeks. Um, but we got excited. We found out that it was another girl and, uh, Sydney was so thrilled because just this little kingdom of girls, mm-hmm. like every guy, I think deep down, I imagine raising a son, but I was excited too. I, yeah. being a girl dad is the best. Um, and so, yeah, we got excited thinking about Rose and Joy sharing a room. We'd have Joy's room for the new baby. We thought about the name Lucy. Um, but in November, 
I remember one day Sydney said that she hadn't felt the baby kick in a couple days. Mm-hmm. And she, having been a mom and had undergone this process before, you're more attuned to stuff like that. You're able to interpret it better. Your first time, it's all new. You don't know what's going on with your body. But this felt weird to her. And when she told me that, I just had like a sinking feeling of what could be. Um, and I was actually driving to the, the church right after that, or I had planned on it to be there for our weekend services. And, um, I mean, I'm just, I'm praying that whole way there, like praying bold prayers. Like <laughs> this child is going to live like that. This, this is not going to happen. Um, and I think that was a Saturday, a Monday, she went into the doctor and I stayed home to watch the girls. And she, she calls me to say that the baby, um, was gone. Um, she's with the doctor by herself and man, I, that, that moment was comparable to what happened with the tree, just this moment of like sheer devastation, but also very different. Um, Mm -hmm. with the tree incident, boom, 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 flying to the hospital to get a spinal fusion surgery. You're on the road to recovery. And with something like this, with any death, like there's no road to recovery. There's no silver lining. There's no optimistic outlook. There's just death. And so later that week we went into the, she was at 21 weeks, which means that we, she was going to have to give birth, not just a miscarriage. So we go to the hospital and man, you go to the hospital at full term and it feels like you are walking into the finish line and a celebratory moment. When you walk in to do a stillbirth, it feels like a prison. Mm-hmm going to the same spot, St. Francis Hospital, labor and delivery wing, mm-hmm. um, knowing that this birth isn't for new life. This, this is a birth of death. Um, and that was the toughest day of our lives. Mm. I probably always will be. Um, it's one of those moments when everything in you says, this is not right. This is just not right. You don't have to be a Christian to think that. Like This is just not how things are supposed to be. So that was in November. It's been... I guess it'd be seven months since then. Her due date was in April. Um, and so it's been, it's been hell mm-hmm. walking through it. We're in a better spot now. She's seen some, seen a counselor. We pro- continue to process this together. She's been ruthlessly honest with me, ruthlessly honest with God. Um, but like, God, we thought the tree thing was a big enough deal for us to only deal with stuff like this once. Like, Two and a half years later to be mm. walking through this. For me, I'm looking at her. She got hit by the tree. She's the one that gave birth to this child. Yeah. God, let me take one of these haymakers. Yeah. Like, I, let me take some of this. I, I am devastated, of course, that I wasn't able to be a dad for Lucy. But I'm looking at my wife thinking, how do I, how do I get rid of it? How do I eliminate what you're feeling? And of course, you can't. You can only be present. Like, you can only ministry in that season is presence. Mm-hmm. It's being with somebody. It's being with her. It's listening. It's not trying to fix or answer or come up with the right scriptures in the moment. It's to cry with her and to say, this sucks. I'm confused. Like that is what ministry is. Um, getting into it with somebody and feeling what they feel and taking it on. Um, I, it's still so fresh. Um, you know, I haven't really preached on it or taught on it. Some people I feel like can overdo it. They go through something hard and they immediately, it almost kind of feels fake. They'll immediately turn it into like, God is good. I know he is. We're going to make it out of the other side. Mm-hmm. That can be true, but I also feel like it can be dishonest. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so we've been trying to navigate being honest through this journey. Um, but pressing through that there, like there is still good to come. There can be ministry out of this. I've been so proud of her. I feel like it's brought us closer together. Um, but considering the looking back at our dink season, yeah, double income, no kids, traveling to Europe, the first four years of our marriage were seamless. Like we had it great. We had no first year hiccups, but the last four years have been tough. Feels we, like God's actually dinking you on the head. That's very true. Yeah, we had a miscarriage before Rose. Um, and then the tree accident. And then finally, God's took out a haymaker on he you. He did, yeah. He had an anaphylactic <laughs> reaction to a talk, kiwi. Talk, talk about that real quick, because the way you explained it was really funny. I know it's not funny. Yeah. But you guys were eating, right? We were eating at Queenie's, which is a restaurant here in Tulsa. And Rose, our three-year-old, we're trying to get her to try new fruit. She's just being stubborn. She <laughs> only would eat apples. Like, Rose, strawberries are amazing. Like, it's quite literally candy. Yeah. Try a strawberry. No. <laughs> And so Sydney has a bright idea to say, Rose, you know what? If you're going to try new fruit, I think daddy needs to try new fruit first. So she stabs a kiwi with a fork, holds it up to her mouth. I take a bite. What and <laughs> and uh, my first thought is, this tastes good, but I, I don't think people like kiwi because it makes their mouth tingle. Yeah. That's a little odd, but okay. Well, a couple minutes pass. It's not just a tingle. It's kind of a numbness that sets in. I think this is weird. And it's one bad kiwi. Yeah, so being in Utica Square, Queenie's is next to a Walgreens, I say, or it might have been Sydney's idea, go get a Benadryl, just take a Benadryl. I go get a Benadryl, walk back, I take the Benadryl, and it was really hard to swallow, and I thought, that's that's odd. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that point, we're concerned. What is going on? So I go back over to Walgreens, and when I open up my mouth to talk and ask for help, I do not sound like myself. <laughs> it's like this muffled version <laughs> And so I'm like, as I'm talking, I'm also freaking out. I'm sure it was quite a scene. You know, the person just looked at me and said, you need to go to urgent care. Uh-huh. So I go back to Queenie's. We pack up the girls. We pay. We drive to urgent care. We had we were supposed to be going to church. This was before church at Saturday night. We go to urgent care. By that point, um, I'm not sure what I looked like. I, my face was red, a little bit swollen. It reminds me of Hitch on, on Yes, uh, that's exactly what Sydney said, too. <laughs> So they give me the EpiPen shot. They give me two, and actually got two shots. Recovered that evening, but had to go to the hospital so they can monitor us. Yeah, you stayed there, right? We stayed there. We didn't. We were able to go home that night. You got to we go home, stay but there still, you were there for a long hours. time. Yeah. Um, man, it was the stupidest thing ever. And forever, you have now scarred her. I know. Eating kiwi. So Rose now will say, kiwis. Rose, what Rose now will say, Daddy, we don't eat kiwis. Yeah. Just apples. So she's never going to try anything new in her life. Yeah. Um, but that was another thing. Like, what the, we like, told what? we yeah. told our friends, and our friends are in that same boat. Like, what is going on? So, so we're done with. It's like if life could be normal for a season, that'd be great. That would not be yeah. not be too bad. Yeah. Well, we all honor your time. Those are great stories. Um, but one thing at the end, we want to do is a little fire round. So you just okay. ask you a few questions. You just come back with a sentence okay. wherever you come to. So faith is. Faith is loyalty to King Jesus. Mm-hmm. Favorite baseball team? College or professional? Both. Okay. Oklahoma State Cowboys okay, and St. Louis Cardinals. St. Louis Cardinals. Yep. Good choices. Okay. Discipline comes from? You've kind of touched on it already. But. Um, the grace of God and my faith combined. Okay. Favorite trip? Uh, Portugal. Awesome. My mission is? Uh, my mission is to be about Jesus' mission. Do you have any, uh, this is not fire round. Thanks for fire round. Yeah. But this is, 
Uh, just, do you have any favorite piece of advice you've ever received that has always just stuck, or a couple pieces? Yeah, so it, that you haven't already touched. This on. isn't going to be a surprise. I, we've talked about this, but I haven't said it like this. It comes from Dave. So at different points in my journey of being a pastor, he's just continued to tell me, pay attention to what God is blessing and do more of that. And what I find in seasons when I'm confused, searching for what to do, Dave's voice will come to my mind. What is God blessing and do more of that? Mm. Yeah, that's really good. This podcast is called Building Excellence. What does excellence and building excellence mean to you? Yeah. For me, man, I mean, I unashamedly answer this within a Christian context as somebody that follows Jesus because without it, I think excellence can be a burden to people because who gets to define what is excellent? Is it the CEO of a company? Is it somebody else that dictates to you what you're supposed to do? Um, to me, excellence is, a, is an act of worship before God. Um, like a gardener, it's taking the raw materials that he's been given to me. Or an artist or a musician, taking these raw materials that are my gifts, <laughs> abilities, and passions. And my act of worship is, with the help of God, fashioning that into my life as kind of an act of worship before him going to have faults, going to mess up. But to me, that is excellence. It's as best as I can for as long as I can with the help of other people, taking the stuff that he's been giving me, these raw materials and fashioning it into something beautiful and excellent for him. Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of like what you just said, the glory of God yeah. being fully yes. alive. Absolutely. Yeah. Blake, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate man. it. It was thanks great for having me. And uh, thanks for all you do as a pastor and as a husband, father, and as a friend too. So, thanks, man. Yep. Hey everyone, it's Bailey Miles. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We hope you found value in the show. And if you enjoyed it, we would really appreciate you sharing the show with a friend, subscribing on Apple or Spotify podcast, writing a quick review, or leaving a five-star rating. When you do that, it really helps get the message out and allows more people to hear these stories and help them build excellence in their life, leadership, and legacy. Now, if you have any questions, thoughts, or ideas, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email. It's bailey at baileymiles.com. Follow us on social. We're on all the different social platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Or check out our website at baileymiles.com. Once again, I'd love to hear from you, so definitely do that. And then thanks again for joining me on this journey. And remember, life begins at the end of your comfort zone.